I was just saying, I've been listening to a bunch of lectures on um, Isaiah, finding it incredibly encouraging, um, but also incredibly challenging. And I always think that is a good mix whenever you're reading the Bible. Um, the Bible should do that. It is no cheerleader to our comfortableness or sinfulness, right? So as we kind of engage with the Bible, it should be, it should be stirring us. And my hope, like in studying all scripture, is that this book is going to draw us into a deeper revelation of who God is and a closer relationship with God. Now, interestingly, there is no other book, I think, uh, that is more influential in the New Testament than the book of Isaiah. And nothing more influential on Jesus' thinking than the book of Isaiah. Um, They have reconstructed what temple worship in the synagogue looked like around the time when Jesus appeared on the scene. And they had a cycle of reading that would go over three years. And every time they would meet to have synagogue, they would read half from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and half from the prophets. Well, yeah, um, we were talking about how important Isaiah is uh, on the New Testament and on Jesus' thinking. Uh, It is the second most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. And I think we are majorly influenced by Isaiah as well, particularly the last third of the book. Um, Now, of course, with Jesus' self-understanding, Isaiah is incredibly influential. Uh, At least 13 times we see specific fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies about the coming Messiah fulfilled in Jesus. Think Luke chapter 4. I think that's the most famous example of this. Uh, Jesus is starting his public ministry. He, He goes to the synagogue. They hand him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He finds what we now call Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the oppressed free. And then he talks about this mission he has of proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour. It says he then rolls up the scroll of Isaiah. He hands it back to the attendant. And he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. For me, that's one of the most amazing moments in the gospel. Jesus is saying, I've arrived to fulfill God's promises. So not only were these Jesus' scriptures, this was his story that he believed that he was coming to fulfill. And that's going to become really important as we come across all the amazing prophecies in Isaiah that come true in the life of Jesus Now, some people call uh, the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel. Jerome, the early church father, uh, writing in the fourth century after Jesus, lords the prophet Isaiah. This is what Jerome said. He said he was more of an evangelist than a prophet because he described all of the mysteries of the church of Christ so vividly that you would assume he was not prophesying about the future, but rather was composing a history of past events. Isn't that cool? And I guess that's particularly, you know, some of the messianic prophecies that we get in the book of Isaiah, like the virgin birth, um, the child who will be called everlasting God, Prince of Peace. And of course, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant motif, and much, much more. But I think as we come to study Isaiah, we don't want to see Isaiah just as a proof text 
for apologetics that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, because this book speaks more broadly to humanity. You know, Isaiah speaks into the universal cry for justice. Uh, it speaks into humanity's longing for peace. It speaks into the hope that we all have of forgiveness. Well, a reminder too, first and foremost, the book of Isaiah is a word to the nation of Israel. Uh, Isaiah was writing into their story and into their covenants and the context that they found themselves in. Now, we want to do that too. We want to um, understand not just what the book of Isaiah is saying to us, but we want to also understand what Isaiah would have been saying to those 8th century recipients uh, who, who listened to Isaiah's oracles. You know, they were facing the threat of annihilation and exile. And, and that raises the question, you know, how is humanity meant to come and know God through their story if they're on the verge of being judged and exiled for getting so much wrong? We may ask that of ourselves, you know, if God is going to use us as a church to spread his glory, how on earth can that happen through such broken and fallible people as you and I? So who is Isaiah and what's an Old Testament prophet? Uh, Isaiah was one of the three major prophets with Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and they wrote between the 8th and 6th centuries before the coming of Jesus. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 tells us that Isaiah was written during the reigns of Uzziah, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, and these were the kings of the southern kingdom of Israel. So Isaiah receives a vision of God's glory. And we're going to get into that a little bit next week. And he began to speak out against the wickedness of the people of God while also bringing them a message of hope and restoration. Now, the last major series we did in this church was on the book of Ephesians. And that was a letter from Paul to the church. And he probably wrote that over a relatively short amount of time, you know, a couple of days or a week. And then it was sent to the church. Unlike that, Isaiah is a collection of his visions and poems and sermons and prophecies that were written over the course of his life. So this is probably 60 plus years of work that has been condensed by editors into what we have today as the book of Isaiah. You know, a plain reading could be quite intimidating. If you just open up your Bible and start reading Isaiah, uh, all 66 chapters, it can be a bit confusing. It assumes you know the events that are going on behind the scenes that the book is referring to. But if we just take a step back, what we would say in general is that Isaiah's role was to speak on behalf of God in regard to the people of God's failure to keep the covenant. So let's just idea, grasp this idea of covenant. Uh, it's really important if we're going to understand Isaiah. What's a covenant? A covenant is like a binding contract between two parties. Uh, all the lawyers in our church just got super excited. Um, you know, lawyers love a contract. And we know covenants as Christians from what we believe that we are a part of. We're part of what Jeremiah prophesied, which would be a new covenant that would be done by the shedding of blood through our Saviour and Messiah, Jesus. Uh, his death on the cross secures us 
The new covenant, it binds us into a relationship to God. Well, if you're thinking about a covenant, think about a marriage. Um, a marriage is in one sense a covenant. At the ceremony, we make vows including to death do us part. We enter into a covenant with our spouse, and it's a covenant about faithfulness. You know, it's our way of saying, I'm not going anywhere. You know, I am in this. Through, through sickness and health, through rich and poor, we are entering into a covenant of faithfulness that is unbreakable. So similarly in the Old Testament, the people of God were in a covenant with Yahweh. Yahweh, the name of their God, who had revealed himself through Abraham, Moses, and David. Think Exodus 19.5. God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. You know, we, we will we'll get married. We will have a relationship. And so what Isaiah is doing is speaking into how this relationship or covenant is going. Now, remember, in the Abrahamic covenant, all nations were to find salvation through this people whom God entered into covenant with. Remember, like they were to be blessed, Abraham, um, Genesis 12. They would be blessed and then all nations would be blessed through them. So the nations were meant to come to Israel to see and taste and learn that God is good. And through that, it would bring peace and healing to all the nations. What we find in Isaiah is that the reality is a far cry from that. And so we're going to see lots of railing against Israel's sin, their injustice, their lack of concern for the poor. But in the midst of that, there is a promise from God that he will move through a king in the line of David who is like a servant who will rule Israel and all the nations. I wonder who that could be. Mm. <laughs> so as we study the book of Isaiah, there is, there is this bigger context of Israel's story. And then there's the immediate context within which it's written. Now, you know the big story if you went to Sunday school. Uh, creation, covenant, exodus, kingship, exile. Um, God has created a good, good world, but it has been damaged by sin. He forms this family through Abraham, who he will bless, and through whom all nations on earth will be blessed. They end up in slavery in Egypt, but with his mighty hand, God uh, frees them and he brings them into the promised land. And then they are given the law by Moses, maybe best summed up by Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 20. Now, this is really important uh, if we want to understand what Isaiah is saying. Now, again, this is a covenant passage. Think of it as a family contract or a marriage between God and his people. So Deuteronomy 13, 15 to 20. This is, this is one of the best passages in the Old Testament. You know this one? This is so good. God says to his people, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees and laws, and then you will live and you will increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. 
But if your hearts turn away and you are not obedient, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and you end up worshipping them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. And so this day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you, but I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. So that's their covenant. That is the people of God's covenant with God. Choose to love God, obey His commands, and that will bring life and prosperity and blessing. But if you disobey, if you break covenant, if you end up looking like all the other nations around you, if you end up worshipping their gods, you are choosing death and curses. And then finally, that big picture. Uh, they ask for a king who at their best is to shepherd them well so that they can keep their covenant. And at worst, these kings will lead them astray. And so much of Isaiah is a word to these kings and it's to these leaders about how they have led the people. All right, so that's the big context. What was the immediate context in which the book of Isaiah was written? Right? Isaiah spoke into a particular point in history of God's people. It was around 740 BC and then for the next 60 years or so. Now, by this stage, there was, uh, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, and they'd been split into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom that had 10 of the tribes, and then there was the two southern, two tribes that made up the southern kingdom, within which we find the city of Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, by the time that Isaiah was writing, due to their rebellion, had already fallen to the Assyrian Empire. Okay? So because of their wickedness and falling in with what the other nations were doing, the entire top ten tribes, the northern kingdoms, had been wiped out by Assyria. It's a little nicer side note here. Do you know in, in the Middle East where you know there's not that many Christians left today, do you know who the strongest Christian population is amongst? It's the Assyrians. Mm. These are amazing. It's, it's the Assyrians. It's the, the Assyrians are the Christians. And they were the ones who were persecuted by ISIS so badly just a couple of years ago. They were the enemy of God's people. Now they are part of his children. <laughs> that gives me the hook. Anyhow. All right, so Isaiah speaks to the two tribes of the southern kingdom uh, within which lies the city of Jerusalem. Now, these two southern tribes, the southern kingdom, are also being threatened by Assyria. And Isaiah will link this impending threat to the judgment of God on the southern kingdom for the breaking of the covenant. Now, we're going to get to the specific charge against them in chapter 1 in just a minute. Now, finally, before we get into chapter 1, let's just quickly consider how the 66 chapters of Isaiah are set out. And there will be a quiz, so take notes. Okay, there's three main sections to the book of Isaiah, and they are relevant to three different periods of their history. First, we have chapters 1 to 39. Chapters 1 to 12 within that is judgment and hope on the people of God, the southern kingdom. Chapters 13 to 39 talks to the nations that actually surrounded them. 
Um, you will know this section from famous passages like, For unto us a child is born. We're going to read that at Christmas. Secondly, we have chapters 40 to 55. That is written in the context of being dragged off into exile by the Babylonians. So it's not actually the Assyrians who end up wiping them out. It's the Babylonians. And it's a short stint of power. But for about seven years, they just come, wipe out, drag the people of God into exile. And then they're defeated and the people return. So that's chapters 40 to 55. You will know this section from the very famous passages about the suffering servant. You know, he was pierced for our transgressions. That was written while they were in exile. And then finally, chapters 56 to 66, which paint a picture of return from exile. Uh, and then interestingly, there's some ongoing judgment because even though the people have returned from exile, they then continue to fail God. But there is also incredible hope for what it can look like when the people of God reflect his character. And you'll know this section from famous passages like the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to pre preach good news to the poor. Right? So much of this stuff, Jesus will pick up. All right, to finish today. <laughs> Longest introduction ever. Just an introduction. <laughs> All right, let's get a taste of the message of Isaiah from chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, open it up. There's one behind you there. There's a red Bible. You've got your own Bible. All right, Evie's got the red one. Got it. Open up to Isaiah chapter 1. It's midway through the mid-later part of the Old Testament. Middle of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 1. Now many scholars believe that what we see in the first two chapters is God prosecuting his case against his people for breaking the contract, for breaking the covenant. Okay, So we hear Isaiah's vision of a heavenly courtroom and God is going to bring judgment and hope and the prophet's role, what Isaiah does, is he speaks on God's behalf. Okay, He prosecutes God's lawsuit against the southern kingdom of Israel. Verse 2, hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I read children, I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. You know, the ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to this sinful nation. A people whose guilt is great. A brood of evildoers. Children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. And they have turned their backs on Him. Now, I don't know about you, but I just hear God's heart breaking in these first few verses. God's people are described as children that he has reared and brought up. And then they've rebelled and turned against him. It says even animals know their masters. But God's children are sinful, a brood of evildoers given to corruption. They were meant to be a blessing. They were meant to have chosen life. But instead, they've turned their backs on the Holy One of Israel, their God. It's not a great start. So what is the problem? Verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. 
I have more than enough of burnt offerings. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Verse 13, God says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. So the issue doesn't seem to be that they've stopped temple worship or making sacrifices to atone for their sins. They're doing the religious stuff. The issue is that whilst they are doing this, they are committing evil deeds and oppressing the poor and not seeking justice. There is a disconnect between their religious observance and the condition of their hearts, their deeds and their wrongdoing. Now, as I preach, let the Spirit of God speak to you. I wonder if you've ever felt that disconnect. I know at times I have in my life. So what's the problem? Well, let's have a look. God says to his children, verse 16, Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And I think in these two verses we get to the heart of why God is bringing judgment on his people. See, they were doing the religious worship, but they had ceased to be a light to the nation. And the main way that they were to do that was in how they treated other people. And that is what is at the heart of their breaking of covenant. This is the pain of raising a child who's meant to reflect you, only for them to turn away and live like the bad neighbourhood kids. And then they have the gumption to turn up, to come and pray and to worship. You know, it's not easy being a leader in the church, right? Yeah, enough said. <laughs> it's the same reason that Jesus goes after the Pharisees. Right? Why did Jesus go after the Pharisees? They were good at outward religious observance. Matthew 23, Jesus says to them, Woe to you hypocrites! You have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Far out of Jesus. And don't his words challenge us? You know, Rick Watt, whose lectures I've been listening to, he's provocative. <laughs> he says this, he says, If there is unforgiveness and injustice in our church communities, you may as well go and urinate on the communion table. Because how we treat one another is how we treat God. Okay? If the Spirit of God's not coming on you right now to convict you of stuff, I don't know what the Word of God's meant to do. Leviticus 19, 2, God says, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then so much of the law in Leviticus, the framework for keeping this covenant, this contract, this marriage, this child and parent relationship, has to do with how we treat people. That's what it means to be holy like God. To be his children is to be like his father. We are to be people keepers. 
And over and over, what we are told is how we treat refugees and foreigners with kindness is how we're treating God. I mean, again, that's Matthew 25, right? You know, we are to care for the orphan and the widow. We are to give to the poor. We are to seek peace. Leviticus 19, don't defraud your neighbor. Don't slander people. Do not pervert justice. Verse 18 of Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge. Love your neighbor as yourself. So because we are made in the image of God, to deface another human being is to deface God. And we, 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 we can all do this. We can do it sexually. We can do it economically. You know, we can, the, the abuse of children in our institutions, we can be profiting from slavery, maybe by buying lots of cheap clothes. And so to live rightly is to put Yahweh at the centre. And if we put Yahweh at the centre, we will treat people as created in his image. Isaiah says, because you despise Yahweh, you've begun to defile other people, each other. Right? Isaiah 1.15 says, your hands are full of blood. <laughs> you know, uh, where are our hands full of blood? Where have we cheered on war? Where have we cheered on oppression of refugees? Where have we cheered on or been economically cooperative with modern day slavery? You know, think of Jesus. He sums up the law and the prophets. How does he do it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's always linked. You want to love God? Love your neighbor. You want to worship God? Treat your neighbor properly. You want to love your neighbour, well, to be honest, you have to love God. Right? It goes both ways. And I think that's why in John 15, Jesus says, People will know you come from God because of your love from one another. Right? I love worship. Right? We put on worship nights. We're gonna, one of the first things we do when we come back, we're going to gather the church and pray and worship. I am all for seeking the presence. I am all for the Spirit of God. But the people around us will not know us because we're really good at singing and putting our hands in the air. The people will know us from how we have treated one another. So we're meant to be set apart. Instead, in Isaiah, we're told the people of God are laden with iniquity. They're laden with iniquity. All right, is it all going to be judgment? Is it all gloom and doom? <laughs> no, verse 18, Isaiah says, Come now, let us settle, settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and you're obedient, you'll eat a good thing of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Yeah, I said earlier this idea that Isaiah chapters 1 and 2, it's a bit like a lawsuit that God is prosecuting through his prophet against the people of Israel. And so God, as usual, makes an incredible offer of reconciliation. 
He says, if you're willing and you're obedient, says God, we have settled this matter and your sins will be washed away. And once again, you will find yourself in the blessings of God, in the good things of the land. But if you do not repent, if you don't stop oppressing people and perpetuating economic injustice, then judgment will come through the sword of the Assyrians. I mean, it has so many echoes, right, of that covenant of Deuteronomy 30, 15. I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, his decrees and his laws, and then you will live and you will increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Right? Be obedient. Return to me. Live in covenant faithfulness and watch how the blessings will flow. Right? Once again, God is saying, choose life. Just choose me. Choose me. And then we're going to see that with Hezekiah in chapters 36 to 39. This time, through his prophet Isaiah, as the threat of destruction at the hand of the Assyrians hangs over them, and it's going to be repeated throughout this series, God says you can be handed over to destruction, or you can trust God and keep his ways and receive life. You know, this is an appeal through the prophet Isaiah, and I believe to us today, to alter the way that we live. You know, Matthew 3.8, Jesus says, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. (laughs) Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So cease to do evil. Defend the orphans. Abandon the old patterns of life. Embrace God's way and his heart, and you will be restored. It's good, huh? <laughs> I mean, God's got a lot to say to us through Isaiah. Well, we've got a bit over time, but that's all right. As we finish today, you know, it's been a huge amount of material to get through. Sorry about the tech stuff. But here's the more important thing. I just wonder, what's the Lord saying to you today? What's the Lord saying to you today? You know, of course, the extension of God's mercy and forgiveness and grace is always the main theme of the Bible. But it doesn't hurt to be reminded of what the Lord requires of you and me. What is the Lord saying to you today? Now, I wonder what covenantal faithfulness to God looks like to you. Let the Spirit of the Lord convict you. You know, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, it says in the New Testament. It's a little taste from what's to come. Isaiah 43, 1-2. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt. You know, what's the Lord saying to you today? How's he calling you to respond? What's he calling you to do? One of the wonderful things about the Spirit of the God is the way he just gently convicts us of our sin and he calls us back into faithful covenant keeping. 
Where do you need to respond? Where's your life, our life together, not reflecting the life of our Heavenly Father? You know, are you defacing others, created in the image of God? Are you using them? Or we're not caring for them? Did you stop giving to the church and giving to the poor? Did you stop caring about the plight of the widow and orphan? Produce fruit, says Jesus, in keeping with repentance. Let's pray. Let's ask the Spirit of God to draw us back into faithful covenant with our gracious God.